Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 8 Magnolia, at fifteen, was a gangling, gawky child whose eyes were too big for her face and whose legs were too long for her skirts. She looked, in fact, all legs, eyes, and elbows. It was a constant race between her knees and her skirt hems. Parthy was forever lengthening frocks. Frequently, Magnolia, looking down at herself, was surprised, like Alice in Wonderland after she had eaten the magic currant cake, to discover how far away from her head her feet were. Being possessed of a natural creamy pallor, which her mother mistook for lack of red corpuscles, she was dosed into chronic biliousness on cod liver oil, cream, eggs, and butter, all of which she loathed. Then suddenly, at sixteen, legs, elbows, and eyes assumed their natural proportions. Overnight, seemingly, she emerged from adolescence a rather amazing-looking young creature with a high, broad forehead, a wide, mobile mouth, great, dark, liquid eyes, and a most lovely speaking voice which nobody noticed. Her dress was transformed with Cinderella-like celerity from the pinafore to the bustle variety. She was not a beauty. She was, in fact, considered rather plain by the unnoticing. Being hipless and almost boyishly flat of bust in a day when the female form was a thing not only of curves but of loops— she was driven by her mother into wearing all sorts of pads and ruffled corset covers and contrivances which somehow failed to conceal the slimness of the frame beneath. She was, even at sixteen, what might be termed distinguished-looking. Merely by standing tall, pale, dark-haired next to Ellie, that plump and pretty ingenue was transformed into a dumpy and rather doe-faced blonde in whose countenance selfishness and dissatisfaction were beginning to etch tell-tale lines. She had been now almost seven years on the showboat. These seven years had spread a tapestry of life and color before her eyes. Broad rivers flowing to the sea— Little towns perched high on the riverbanks, or cowering flat and fearful at the mercy of the waters that often crept like hungry and devouring monsters, stealthily over the levee and into the valley below. A life fantastic, bizarre, peaceful, rowdy, prim, eventful, calm. On the rivers anything might happen, and everything did. She saw convict chain gangs working on the roads, grisly, nightmarish figures of striped horror, manacled leg to leg. At night you heard them singing plantation songs in the fitful glare of their campfires in the woods, simple songs, full of hope. Didn't my lord deliver Daniel, they sang. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. 
Iowa, Illinois, and Missouri, small-town housewives came to be Magnolia's friends, and even Parthy's. The coming of the showboat was the one flash of blazing color in the drab routine of their existence. To them, Schultze was the John Drew of the rivers, Ellie the Lillian Russell. You saw them scudding down the placid, tree-shaded streets in their morning ginghams and calicoes, their bits of silver clasped in their work-seamed hands or knotted into the corner of a handkerchief. Fifty cents for two seats at tonight's show. How are you, Miss Hawks? And the little girl? My, look at the way she's shot up in a year's time. Well, you can't call her little girl anymore. I brought you a glass of my homemade damson preserve. I take a cup of sugar to cup of juice. Real rich, but it is good if I do say so. I told Will I was coming to the show every night you were here, and he could like it or lump it. I've been saving out of the housekeeping money. They brought vast chocolate cakes, batches of cookies, jugs of home-brewed grape wine, loaves of fresh bread, jars of strained honey, stiff, tight bunches of garden flowers, offerings on the Shrine of Art. Periodically, Parthy threatened to give up this roving life and take Magnolia with her. She held this as a weapon over Andy's head when he crossed her will or displeased her. Immediately, boarding schools, convents, and seminaries yawned for Magnolia. Perhaps Parthy was right. What kind of a life is this for a child? And later, a fine kind of a way for a young lady to be living, slopping up and down these rivers, seeing nothing but loafers and gamblers and, and worse. What about her future? Future, as she pronounced it, was spelled with a capital F, and was a thin disguise for the word husband. Future'll take care of itself, Andy assured her blithely. Oh, if that isn't just like a man. It was inevitable that Magnolia should, sooner or later, find herself through force of circumstance treading the boards as an actress in the Cotton Blossom Floating Theatre Company. Not only that, she found herself playing ingenue leads. She had been thrown in as a stopgap following Ellie's defection and had become, quite without previous planning, a permanent member of the troupe. Strangely enough, she developed an enormous following, though she lacked that saccharine quality which river towns had come to expect in their showboat ingenues. True, her long legs were a little lanky beneath the short skirts of the woodman's pure daughter, but... What she lacked in one extremity, she made up in another. They got full measure when they looked at her eyes, and her voice made the small-town housewives weep. Yet when their husbands nudged them, saying, "'What are you sniffling about?' they could only reply, "'Oh, I don't know.' And no more did they. Ellie was twenty-eight when she deserted Chelsea for a gambler from Mobile. For three years, she had been restless, fault-finding, dissatisfied. Each autumn, she would announce to Captain Andy her intention to forsake the rivers and bestow her talents ashore. 
During the winter, she would try to get an engagement through the Chicago booking offices, contrary to the custom of showboat actors, whose habit it was to hibernate in the winter on the savings of a long and economical summer. But the Chicago field was sparse and uncertain. She never had the courage or the imagination to go as far as New York. April would find her back on the cotton blossom. Between her and Schultze, the bickerings and the quarrels became more and more frequent. She openly defied Schultze as he directed rehearsals. She refused to follow his suggestions, though he had a real sense of direction. Everything she knew, he had taught her. She invariably misread a line and had to be coached in it, word by word, inflection, business, everything. Yet now, when Schultze said, No, listen, you've been kidnapped and smuggled on board this rich fella's yacht, see? And he thinks he's got you in his power. He goes to grab you. You're here, see? Then you point toward the door back of him, see? Like you saw something there scared the life out of you. He turns around, and you grab the gun off the table, see, and cover him. And there's your big speech. So-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so, and so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. The ad-lib directions that have held since the day of Shakespeare. Well, Ellie would deliberately defy him. Others in the company, new members, began to take their cue from her. She complained about her wardrobe, refused to interest herself in it, though she had been an indefatigable needlewoman. Now, instead of sewing, you saw her looking moodily out across the river, her hands idle, her brows black. An unintelligent and unresourceful woman turned moody and thoughtful must come to mischief, for within herself she finds no solace. At Mobile Van... She was gone. It was, they all knew, the black mustache gambler who had been following the showboat down the river since they played Paducah, Kentucky. Ellie had had dozens of admirers in her showboat career, had received much attention from southern gallants, gamblers, loafers, adventurers, all the romantic beau of the river towns of the 80s. Her attitude toward them had been puritanical to the point of sniffiness, though she had enjoyed their homage and always displayed any amorous missives or gifts that came her way. True to the melodramatic tradition of her environment, she left a note for Schultze, written in a flourishing Spenseriad hand that made up in part for the spelling. She was gone. He need not try to follow her or find her or bring her back. She was going to star at the head of her own company and play Camille and even Juliet. He had promised her. She was good and sick and tired of this everlasting flopping up and down the rivers. She wouldn't go back to it, no matter what. Her successor could have her wardrobe. They had bookings through Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, and Kansas. She might even get to New York. Incredibly enough, she did actually play Juliet through the Midwest to audiences of the bewildered yokelry. She was sorry to leave Cap in the lurch like this, and she would close and beg to remain his loving wife. This inked out, but still decipherable. Beg to remain his truly Ellie Chipley. Just below this signature, the added one of Lenore Laverne, done in tremendous sable downstrokes and shaded curlicues, especially about the L's. 
Well, it was a crushing blow for Schultze, who loved her. Stricken, he thought only of her happiness. She can't get along without me, he groaned. Then, in a stunned way, Juliet. There was nothing of bitterness or rancor in his tone, only a dumb, despairing wonder. Juliet. And she couldn't play little Eva without making her out a slut. He pondered this a moment. She's got it into her head. She's Bernard or something. Well, she'll come back. Do you mean to say you take her back? Parthy demanded. Why, sure, Chelsea replied simply. She never packed a trunk in her life or anything. I'd done all those things for her. Somewhere she's a child. I guess that's how she kept me so tight. She needed me all the time. Well, she'll come back. Captain Andy sent to Chicago for an ingenue lead. It was then, pending her arrival, that Magnolia stepped into the breach. The step being made, incidentally, over what was practically Parthy's dead body. For at Magnolia's calm announcement that she knew every line of the part and all the business, her mother stormed, had hysterics, and finally took to her bed, until nearly time for the rise of the curtain. The bill that night was The Parson's Bride. Showboat companies to this day still tell the story of what happened during that performance on the Cotton Blossom. They had two rehearsals, one in the morning, another that lasted throughout the afternoon. Of the company, Magnolia was the calmest. Captain Andy seemed to swing, by invisible pulleys, from the orchestra pit below to Parthy's chamber above. One moment he would be sprawled in the kerosene footlights, his eyes deep in wrinkles of delight, his little brown paws scratching the mutton-chop whiskers in a frenzy of excitement. That's right! That's the stuff! Ellie never gave it half the... Excuse me, Schultze, I didn't go for to hurt your feelings, but golly nolly, I wouldn't have believed you had it in you, not if your own mother to... Then self-reminded, he would cast a fearful glance over his shoulder. That shoulder would droop. He would extricate himself from the welter of footlights and music racks and prompt books in which he squatted and scamper up the aisle. The dim outline of a female head in curl papers certainly could not have been seen peering over the top of the balcony rail as he fancied, for when he had clattered up the balcony stairs and had gently turned the knob of the bedroom door, there lay the curl-papered head on the pillow of the big bed, and from it issued hollow groans, and plastered over one cheek of it was a large, moist white cloth soaked in some pungent and nostril-pricking stuff. The eyes were closed. The whole figure was shaken by shivers. Mortal agony, you would have said, had you not known Parthy, had this stricken and monumental creature in its horrid clutches in a whisper. Parthy. A groan, hollow, heart-rending, mortuary. He entered, shut the door softly, tiptoed over to the bed, laid a comforting brown paw on the shivering shoulder. The shoulder became convulsive. The shivers swelled to heaves. Oh, now, now, Parthy, what you taking on so for? God, a mighty person thinks she done something to shame you instead of making you mighty proud. If you'd seen her, 
Why, see, she's a born actress. The groans now became a wail. The eyes unclosed. The figure raised itself to a sitting posture. The sopping rag rolled limply off. Parthy rocked herself to and fro. My own daughter, an actress, that I should have lived to see this day. Rather have in her grave. Why I ever allowed her to set foot on this filthy scow? Now, Parthy, you're just working yourself up. Matter of fact, that time Miss Means turned her ankle and we thought she couldn't step on it, you was all for going on in her part. And I bet if Sophie Means hadn't tied up her foot and gone on like a soldier she is, we'd have had you acting that night. You was raring to go. I watched you. May acting on the stage. Not that I couldn't play better than any Sophie means, and that's no compliment. A poor stick, if I couldn't. But her defense lacked conviction. Andy had surprised a secret ambition in this iron-armored bosom. Now come on, tear up, Ought to be proud your own daughter stepping in and saving us money like this. We'd have closed, had to. God knows when that new baggage will get here, if she gets here at all. What do you think of that, Shipley? Why, I've treated that girl. If she'd been my own daughter. Well, how'd you like a nice little sip of whiskey, Parthy? Then you come on down and give Nolly a hand with her costumes. Chipley stuff comes up on her like ballet skirts. Oh, now, now, now. I didn't say she... Oh, my God. Parthy had gone off again into hysterics. My own daughter. <laughs> my little girl. <laughs> The time for severe measures had come. Andy had not dealt with actresses for years without learning something of the weapons with which to fight hysteria. All right, all right, I'll give you something to screech for. The boys paraded this noon with a banner six feet long and red letters a foot high, announcing the appearance extraordinaire of Magnolia, the mysterious comedy tragedienne in The Parson's Bride. I made a special spiel on the corner. We got the biggest advance sale we had this season. Yes, sir. Doc's downstairs raking it in with both hands, and you had the least bit of gumption in you. Instead of laying there, whining and carrying on, you... What's the advance? Spake up Parthy, the box office expert. Three hundred, and not anywheres near four o'clock. With one movement, Parthy had flung aside the bedclothes and stepped out of bed, revealing, rather inexplicably, a complete lower costume, including shoes. And he was off, down the stairs, up the aisle, into the orchestra pit, just in time to hear Magnolia say, "'Schultzy, please, don't throw me the line like that. I know it. I didn't stop because I was stuck.' "'What did you stop for, then? And look like you'd seen spooks.' I stopped a purpose. She sees her husband that she hates and that she thought was dead for years come sneaking in, and she wouldn't start right into talk. She'd just stand there, kind of frozen and stiff, staring at him. All right, if you know so much about directing, go ahead and... She ran to him, threw her arms about him, hugged him, all contrition. Oh, Schultze, don't be mad. I didn't go to boss. I just wanted to act it like I felt. And I'm awfully sorry about Ellie and everything. I'll do as you say. Only I just can't 
help thinking, Schultzy dear, that she'd stand there, staring, kind of silly almost. You're right. I guess my mind ain't on my work. I ought to know how right you are. I got that letter Ellie left for me. I just stood there gawping with my mouth open and never said a word for I don't know how long. Oh, my God. Oh, there, there, Schultzy. By a tremendous effort, the mechanics of which were not entirely concealed, Schultzy, the man, gave way to Harold Westbrook, the artist. You're right, Magnolia. That'll get him. You standing there like that, stunned and pale. Well, how'll I get pale, Schultzy? You'll feel pale inside, and the audience will think you are. The whole art of acting, unconsciously expressed by Schultzy. Then Frank here has his sneery speech. So-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. And, so and, so and, so and, so and thought you'd marry the parson, huh? And then you open up with your big scene. So-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Outwardly calm, Magnolia took only a cup of coffee at dinner, and Parthy, for once, did not press her to eat. That mournful matron, though still occasionally shaken by a convulsive shudder, managed her usual heartening repast, and actually spent the time from four to seven lengthening Ellie's frocks for Magnolia, and taking them in to fit the girl's slight frame. Schultze made her up and rather overdid it, so that, as the deserted wife and schoolteacher, and, later, as the parson's prospective bride, she looked like a pass between a healthy Camille and Cleopatra just before she applied the asp. In fact, in their effort to bridge the gap left by Ellie's sudden flight, the entire company overdid everything, and thus brought about the cataclysmic moment which is theatrical showboat history. Magnolia, so sure of her lines during rehearsal, forgot them a score of times during the performance, and had it not been for Schultze, who threw them to her unerringly and swiftly, would have made a dismal failure of this, her first stage appearance. They were playing Vidalia, always a good showboat town. The house was filled from the balcony boxes to the last row downstairs near the door, from which point every little thing could be seen and practically nothing heard. Something of the undercurrent of excitement which pervaded the Cotton Blossom troupe seemed to seep through the audience, and perhaps even an audience so unsophisticated as this could not but sense the unusual in this performance. Every one of the troupe, Schultze, Miss Means, Mr. Means, Frank, Ralph, the Sopers, character team that had succeeded Julie and Steve, all were trembling for Magnolia. And because they were fearful for her, they threw themselves frantically into their parts. Magnolia, taking her cue, literally as well as figuratively, from them, did likewise. As ingenue lead, her part was that of a young schoolmistress earning her livelihood in a little town. Deserted some years before by her worthless husband, she learns now of his death. The town parson has long been in love with her, and she with him. Now they can marry. The wedding gown is finished. The guests are invited. This is her last day as a schoolteacher. She is alone in the empty schoolroom. 
Farewell, dear pupils. Farewell, dear schoolroom, blackboard, erasers, water bucket, desk, etc. She picks up her key. But what is this evil face in the doorway? Who is this drunken, leering tramp, grisly in rags, repulsive? <gasps> my God, you, my husband! Never was villain so black and diabolical as Frank. Never was heroine so lovely and frail and trembling and helpless and white as per Schultze's directions. As for Schultze himself, the heroic parson, very heavily made up and pure yet brave withal, it was a poor stick of a maiden who wouldn't have contrived to get into some sort of distressing circumstance just for the joy of being got out of it by this godly yet godlike young cleric. Frank then, I reckon you thought I was dead. Well, I'm about the liveliest corpse you ever saw. A diabolical laugh. Too damn bad you won't be able to wear that new wedding dress. Pleadings, agony, despair. Now his true villainy comes out. A thousand dollars, then, and quick, or you don't walk down the aisle to the music of no wedding march. I haven't got it. No? Where's the money you've been saving all these years? I haven't a thousand dollars. I swear it. So, seizes her, drags her across the room, screams. His hand stifles them. Unfortunately, in their very desire to help Magnolia, they all exaggerated their villainy, their heroism, their business. Being a trifle uncertain of her lines, Magnolia, too, sought to cover her deficiencies by stressing her emotional scenes. When terror was required, her face was distorted with it. Her screams of fright were real screams of mortal fear. Her writhings would have wrung pity from a fiend. Frank bared his teeth, chortled like a maniac. He wound his fingers in her long black hair and rather justified her outcry. In contrast, Schultze's nobility and purity stood out as crudely and unmistakably as white against black. Nuances were not for showboat audiences. So then, screams, protestations, snarls, ha-ha's, pleadings, agony, cruelty, anguish. Something, intuition, or perhaps a sound from the left upper box made Frank, the villain, glance up. There, leaning over the box rail, his face a mask of hatred, his eyes glinting, sat a huge, hairy backwoodsman, and in his hand glittered the barrel of a business-like gun. He was taking careful aim. Drama had come late into the life of this literal mind. He had, in the course of a quick-shooting, rough-and-tumble career, often seen the brutal male mishandling beauty in distress. His code was simple. One second more, and he would act on it. Frank's hand released his struggling victim. Gentleness and love overspread his features, dispelling their villainy. To Magnolia, staring an open-mouthed amazement, he made a gesture of abnegation. Well, Marge, I ain't got nothing more to say if you and the parson want to get married. 
after which astounding utterance he slunk rapidly off, leaving the field to what was perhaps the most abject huddle of heroism that ever graced a showboat stage. The curtain came down. The audience, intuitively glancing toward the upper box, ducked, screamed, or swore. The band struck up. The backwoodsman, a little bewildered but still truculent, subsided somewhat. A trifle mystified, but laboring under the impression that this was perhaps the ordinary routine of the theater, the audience heard Schultze in front of the curtain explaining that the villain was taken suddenly ill, that the concert would now be given free of charge, that each and every man, woman, and child was invited to retain his seat. The backwoodsman, rather sheepish now, took a huge bite of honest scrap and looked about him belligerently. Out came Mr. Means to do his comic Chinaman. Order reigned on one side of the footplates at least, though behind the heaving Venetian lagoon was a company saved from collapse only by a quite human uncertainty as to whether tears or laughter would best express their state of mind. The new ingenue lead, scheduled to meet the cotton blossom at Natchez, failed to appear. Magnolia, following her trial by firearms, had played the absent Ellie's parts for a week. There seemed to be no good reason why she should not continue to do so, at least until Captain Andy could engage an ingenue who would join the troupe at New Orleans. A year passed. Magnolia was a fixture in the company. Now, as she, in company with Parthy, or Miss Means, or Mrs. Soper, appeared on the front street of this or that little river town, she was stared at and commented upon. Round-eyed little girls, swinging on the front gate, gazed at her much as she had gazed, not so many years before, at Ellie and Julie as they had sauntered down the shady path of her own street in Thebes. She loved the life. She worked hard. She cherished the admiration and applause. She took her work seriously. Certainly, she did not consider herself an apostle of art. She had no illusions about herself as an actress, but she did thrive on the warm electric current that flowed from those river audiences, made up of miners, farmers, housewives, harvesters, backwoodsmen, villagers, over the footlights to her. And naive people, they accepted their theater without question. Like children, that which they saw, they believed. They hissed the villain, applauded the heroine, wept over the plight of the wronged. The plays were as naive as the audience. In them, onrushing engines were cheated of their victims. Mill wheels were stopped in the nick of time. Heroes, bound hand and foot and left to be crushed under iron wheels, were rescued by the switchman's ubiquitous daughter. Sheriffs popped up unexpectedly in hidden caves. The sound of horses' hooves could always be heard when virtue was about to be ravished. They were the minstrels of the rivers, these players, telling in terms of blood, love, and adventure the crude saga of a new country. Frank, the heavy, promptly fell in love with Magnolia. Parthy, quick to mark the sheep's eyes he cast in the direction of the ingenue lead, watched him with a tigerous glare, and though he lived on the cotton blossom, as did Magnolia, 
saw her all day, daily, probably was seldom more than a hundred feet removed from her. He never spoke to her alone, and certainly never was able to touch her except in the very public glare of the footlights, with some hundreds of pairs of eyes turned on the two by the cotton blossom audiences. He lounged disconsolately after her, a large and somewhat splay-footed fellow whose head was too small for his shoulders, giving him the look of an inverted exclamation point. His unrequited and unexpressed passion for Magnolia would have bothered that young lady and her parents very little were it not for the fact that his emotions began to influence his art. In his scenes on the stage with her, he became more and more uncertain of his lines. Not only that, his attitude and tone as villain of the piece took on a tender note most mystifying to the audience, accustomed to seeing villainy black with no half-tones. When he should have been hurling Magnolia into the millstream, or tying her brutally to the track, or lashing her with a horsewhip, or snarling at her like a wolf, he became a cooing dove. His blows were caresses. His baleful glare became a simper of adoration. "'Do you intend to speak to that sheep, or shall I?' demanded Parthy of her husband. "'I'll do it,' Andy assured her hurriedly. "'Leave him be till we get to New Orleans, and if anything busts, I can always get some kind of fill-in there.' They had been playing the Louisiana parishes, little Catholic settlements between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, their inhabitants a mixture of French and Creole. Frank had wandered disconsolately through the miniature cathedral which each little parish boasted, and, returning, had spoken darkly of abandoning the stage for the church. New Orleans meant mail for the Cotton Blossom Troop. With that mail came trouble. Schultze, white but determined, "'approached Captain Andy, letter in hand. "'I got to go, Cap. She needs me.' "'Go?' squeaked Andy. "'His squeak was equivalent to a bellow in a man of ordinary stature. "'Go where? What do you mean, she?' "'But he knew. Out popped Parthy, scenting trouble. "'Schultze held out a letter written on cheap paper, "'lined and smelling faintly of antiseptic.' She's in the hospital at Little Rock. Says she's had an operation. He's left her the skunk. She ain't got a cent. I'll take my oath on that, Parthy put in pungently. You can't go and leave me flat now, Schultze. I gotta go. I tell you, Frank can play leads till you get somebody or till I get back. Old means can play utility at a pinch and Doc can do general business. Frank, announced Parthy with terrible distinctness, will play no leads in this company. And so I tell you, Hawks. Who says he's going to? A fine-looking lady'd make with that pinhead of his and those elephants' hoofs. Oh, now, looky here, Schultze. You've been a trooper long enough to know you can't leave a show in the ditch like this. No real showboat actor do it, and you know it. Oh, sure, I know it. I wouldn't do it for myself, no matter what. But it's her. I wrote her a letter time she left. I got her bookings. I said, if the time comes you need me, leave me know, and I'll come. And she needs me, and, and she let me know, and, and I'm coming. 
Oh, how about us? demanded Parthy, leaving us in the lurch like that. First Ellie, and now you, after all these years. A fine pair, the two of you. Now, Parthy, oh, I've no patience with you, Hawks, always letting people get the best of you. But I told you, Schultze began again, almost tearfully, it's for her, not for me. She's sick. You can pick up somebody here in New Orleans. I bet there's a dozen better actors than me laying around the docks this minute. I got to talking to a fellow a while ago down on the wharf. The place was all jammed up with freight, and I was waiting to get by so as I could come aboard. I said I was an actor on the Cotton Blossom, and he said he'd acted, and that was a life he'd like. Yes, snapped Parthy. I suppose he would. What does he think this is? A bumboat? Plenty of wharf rafts in New Orleans are like nothing better. Schultze pointed to where a slim figure leaned indolently against a huge packing case, one of hundreds of idlers dotting the great New Orleans plank landing. Andy adjusted the pair of ancient binoculars through which he recently had been scanning the wharf and the city beyond the levee. He surveyed the graceful, lounging figure. I'd go ashore and talk to him. I was you, advised Schultze. Andy put down the glasses and stared at Schultze in amazement. Him? Why, well, I couldn't go up and talk to him about acting on no showboat. He's a gentleman. Here, said Parthy abruptly. Her curiosity piqued. She, in turn, trained the glasses on the object of the discussion. Her survey was brief but ample. He may be a gentleman, but nobody feels a gentleman with a crack in his shoe, and he's got one. I can't say I like the looks of him, especially. But with Schultze playing us this dirty trick, well, that's what it amounts to, and there's no sense trying to prettify it. We can't be choosers. I just step down, talk to him. If I was you, Hawks. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.